Well, could we turn again to God's word and to the book of 2 Peter? 2 Peter chapter 2. We'll be continuing on our series in that, finishing off chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 20 through to 22 today, but I'm going to start reading from verse 17. Second Peter 2, verse 17. And of course, Peter is talking here about the false teachers uh, that he has been describing and railing against. And this is the conclusion of his argument. These false teachers are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ... They are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow after washing herself returns to wallow in the mire. This is the word of God. Let's just pray briefly again before we, we look at it together. Oh Lord, thank you for your word. We recognize that in this passage there is a challenge to us. And we pray that we would be open and receptive to take it. But thank you that you always warn us, your children, graciously. Because you love us as a father. Help us to receive it as such. Amen. Well, most of you know that I spent some time living in Nigeria, and there are many memories impressed on my mind from then. Food, the taste of food, the smells, the faces of people that I met. But one thing that's really impressed on my mind is a particular road near where we lived. Where we lived, we were in the middle of the bush. There were dirt tracks mostly, and some good roads that were good maybe 20 years ago and now full of potholes and destroyed. But this road was a good road. It would certainly pass here. Perfect, smooth, flat, freshly tarmacked. It was a a smooth road. And the fact that it was a smooth and flat road meant that it had good foundations underneath. Many a road in Nigeria is thrown down cheaply and quickly without foundations. And in the heat, which is more blistering than we have experienced, the road starts to ripple. And so it's like driving over bumps. And the the fresh tarmac is soon destroyed. But this road had good foundations. But what was most memorable about this road is where it led to, its destination. The road suddenly stopped and just became a dirt track. That's all they paved to. And where did it stop? Well, it stopped at the driveway that led up to a beautiful mansion. It was the house that belonged to the state governor. And so, obviously, a symbol of corruption. He paid to have the road paved nicely to his house and then no further. 
But that is also a good picture of the Christian life. A road, foundations, and a destination. And that's how Peter has talked about the Christian life throughout this letter, and especially in this chapter, even as he contrasts it with the way the false teachers lived. Firstly, there's a road. He refers to it as the way of truth in chapter 2, verse 2. He refers to it as the way of righteousness. That word way, it's exactly the same word for road in the original language. It speaks of a way of life, how we live. The Christian faith is a way. It places demands on how we live. And the false teachers have abandoned that way. There are foundations as well. It's the way or the road of truth. It's founded on truth. The demands on how we live are built on what we must believe. And if that was not the case, it would just be a system of morals, a philosophy. But it's not. It's a way of truth. How we live based on what we believe. And then finally, there's a destination. For those on the way of truth, that leads to the eternal kingdom, as Peter calls it, the new heavens and the new earth. And we'll be thinking about that next week when we come to chapter three. But for the false teachers, they follow, not the way of truth, but they follow their own desires, their own sinful desires. Um, If Peter has been clear about one thing in this chapter, if he has emphasized one thing, it's where they are headed. This way of the flesh leads to hell and to final eternal judgment. And so this chapter is a warning. It's a warning to those believers in Peter's day who would follow after the false teachers. He talks about that. It's a warning to us today to remember that there are two ways to live. And in these final verses especially, Peter warns us very clearly Don't abandon the way of truth or you may never find your way back again. Don't abandon the way of truth or you may never find your way back again. Firstly, consider a warning against turning away. So Peter's been delivering this warning throughout the chapter uh, by getting his readers to consider not just how the false teachers live, but the outcome of the way they live. Their, their last state. They may appear to be happy and free, but what is their true condition? The true condition of their heart. And their true condition is in fact tragic. It's not happy or free at all. Be warned, says Peter, by considering, firstly, their tragic condition. Verse 19, we looked at this last time. We learned that they are enslaved. Even though they promise freedom, they're actually enslaved um, to their corruption. But they're also overcome. He says that in verse 19 too. Whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Literally defeated. Defeated. But in verse 20 that we'll be looking at now, uh, Peter's going to elaborate on this condition of being overcome or defeated. And so we want to ask three things. First of all, when? When did this happen? When did they become overcome? Well, it says quite clearly, if after they have escaped 
the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. This is the language that Peter uses to describe conversion of true believers back in chapter 1. Flick there with me to chapter 1, verse 4. Cast your eye down to the end of the verse. It says that believers have escaped. So it's the same word, escaped. What have they escaped from? Corruption. Well, back in chapter 2, verse 20, Peter says, not corruption, uh, but defilements, but it's a similar idea. That is in the world. He says the same thing in chapter 2, verse 20. Um, and how does this come? Through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Well, back in chapter 1, verse 3, that's how the believers were saved. Through the knowledge of him who called us. So he's using this same language of conversion. This appears to have happened. And I use that word appears to the false teachers. And now they have become well, they've become overcome by their sin again, and they are lost. So that's when it's happened. We're not talking about people who've never come to faith. We're talking about people who have made a profession of faith. How did it happen? Well, back to chapter 2, verse 20. Uh, they uh, have escaped, but then they are again entangled in them. What is them? the defilements of the world, their sin, their sinful desires. They've become entangled in them again, and so they have become overcome. The very things that they were rescued from, they've been defeated by them. There's a video on the internet, maybe you've seen it, I've seen it a couple of times, of a shepherd pulling a sheep out of a ditch by the side of the road, and he sets it down on the road, and the sheep bolts away from him, veers off into the very same ditch that he was stuck in the first time. And he's stuck again. A parable of how stupid sheep are, but also a parable of the false teachers. They have escaped, they were rescued, and then further on up the road, they're back again. And they're overcome, they're stuck, they're entangled. So when... It happened after they made a profession of faith. How? They've become entangled in their sin. And what's the result, finally? Well, the result is, verse 20, the last phrase, the last state has become worse for them than the first. They're in a worse off state, having made a profession of faith and now being lost. Why is that? Well, it could be that they will receive a worse punishment in the punishment to come. But it seems more likely to me that their state is worse now because there's a greater hardness to receiving the gospel and being rescued again. They've heard the gospel, they appeared to believe in it, but now they've rejected it. So why would they go back to it? And Jesus talks about this way as well. He talks about an unforgivable sin, which leads to a hardness that one is not likely to repent from. That seems to be why their current position is worse than that of an unbeliever who's never heard the gospel. Perhaps both are in view, but either way, their, their tragic condition is clear. They once believed, 
it seems. And now they're hardened against the gospel. So Peter warns the believers, don't abandon the way of truth because like these people, you may never find your way back again. And so how do we apply that warning? Well, sometimes sin promises us future grace. It says, go on ahead. Don't worry about it. You can ask for forgiveness again. Now that's true, but Satan's lies are always half-truths. It's true that you can seek forgiveness again, but the person who continually says, ah, oh, it's okay, I can, I can ask for forgiveness later, doesn't matter, is actually becoming more and more entangled in that sin that they're not, in fact, repenting of. Sin entangles you by hardening yourself against repentance. Sometimes sin promises cheap grace. It says, listen, there won't be any consequences. You're covered by Christ's blood. There's no need for you to change. And again, there's a bit of truth in there. You're covered by Christ's blood. But the person who continually believes that there's no consequences and they don't need to repent, and it doesn't matter how they live, may ironically find themselves in a worse off condition than the punishment they believed that they had actually escaped from. The false teachers are in a tragic condition. Peter says they had escaped the defilements that were in the world, but now they're entangled in them again. He says they knew our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, but now they're denying the master who bought them. Now at this stage, we need to ask, and perhaps you've already been wondering and asking yourself, what does it mean that they had a knowledge of the Lord? Did, did they know him? Did they know Jesus as their savior? Can saving knowledge really be lost? In other words, can a true Christian lose their salvation? Well, we know the answer to that is no. And that's in our doctrinal statement. So if you're a member here, you've signed up to that. Christians, true believers cannot lose their salvation but we must be convinced of our answer, especially when we come to hard passages like this. The stakes are high. If we are not convinced in the face of difficult passages that we cannot lose our salvation, then we are robbed of our assurance and the comfort that that brings. We've considered their tragic condition. Let's consider their knowledge of the gospel and what it really means. Knowledge is a key word for Peter. He uses it throughout this letter. And in verse 20, as we've read, he talks about how their, their, their escape came through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But Peter talks about two other things that they knew in verse 21. Cast your eye down to there. And these, these things that they knew, it's really two different ways of saying what he's already said. So we have a knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they, they also knew the way of righteousness. And after knowing it, they turned back from the holy commandment delivered to them. So here's three things that they knew. The Lord Jesus, the way of righteousness, and the holy commandment. So let's consider those because they, they shed light on the others. It's 
the same thing, but looked at from three different perspectives. So firstly, they knew a person. What was it that came through the knowledge of their, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Well, we've already talked about this. Escape from their sin, salvation. But salvation isn't abstract. It's not just about knowing things. It's about knowing a person. It's about knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is how the false teacher's knowledge is described. It's not described in a superficial way, like they knew things about Jesus. No, it appears that they knew him. But if we are going to figure out, well, was it a saving knowledge? Well, we need to consider the other two things. So they knew a person, but they also knew a way, the way of righteousness. And back in chapter 1, Peter says very clearly that knowing the Lord Jesus gives us a power for life and godliness. That's chapter 1, verse 3, and we talked about that in depth. When you know the one, the one who called you, you also have the power to live a godly life. There's an unbreakable link between the person who saves us, the Lord Jesus, and the power he gives us to grow in godliness. The one who saves us and places us on the way of truth empowers us to walk it. And it's clear that the false teachers don't live in this way. So why is that? Did they really know the Lord Jesus as their savior? Well, before we answer that, let's consider the third thing they knew. They knew a message, a message. When Peter refers to the holy commandment in verse 21, he's very likely talking about the whole Christian faith, the whole gospel message, the gospel, what God has done for us, but also its demands. And this is exactly the same word that Paul uses for it when he's writing to Timothy. He calls the faith, the good confession, and the commandment, calls it the commandment. So they knew a person they knew a way, they knew a message, but we're, we're reminded in chapter two that they abandoned the way. They lived in a way that they shouldn't have, and they also abandoned the message. They brought in destructive heresies. So, did they know the Lord as Savior? It wouldn't appear so. They turned back from the gospel's truth and its demands. And Peter consistently, along with the other writers of the New Testament, he ties the person of Jesus to the truth of the gospel and the demands that it makes on our lives. It's like a three-legged stool. You take one leg out of a three-legged stool, it's not a stool anymore. It's not going to work. And if you know the person, the power to believe and to live as you ought to comes from that. And so it would appear that the false teachers have a, a non-saving knowledge. Peter, Peter's probably using experiential language here. What do I mean by that? Well, it's, it's a kind of way of speaking from a human perspective. To all the other believers in that church, the false teachers initially appeared to know Jesus. But that wasn't the reality. That's experiential language. Peter talks about them that way. In the same way that we talk about the sun setting and rising, when in fact it doesn't. We're talking about how it looks, but we know it's not the reality. 
Hence, verse 22. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow, after washing herself returns to wallow in the mire. They appeared to be clean, like the clean pig. They cleared to be healthy, like the dog who has brought up what shouldn't have been in its stomach. But a dog is still a dog, and a pig is still a pig. A dog will return to its vomit. A pig will return to have a bath in the mud. Their nature hasn't changed. So to conclude then, carefully reading this passage and it is a difficult passage in light of everything that Peter says in this letter would lead us to this those who abandon either gospel truth or obedience they never had a saving knowledge of Jesus in the first place why because Christ who calls us empowers us to be holy So this whole chapter, and especially these closing verses, do not teach that we can lose our salvation. Rather, the point Peter's trying to make here is to make a very real warning to watch how we live. We get caught up in the question of, can you lose your salvation, which is an important question. We miss the warning. It's a real warning against turning away. So the warning is this for us, consider your walk with the Lord, not over a period of days or weeks or even months, but over years. Are you still walking with the Lord or is there a downward spiral? Are you veering off the path? Be warned by this passage Be warned against slippery slopes as well. Like I mentioned before, it doesn't really matter if you sin. You can just say you're sorry. But that's not how it works. A true believer longs to fight against sin and to stay on the way. And yes, we have times where we feel. And for some, they have long seasons even of backsliding. But the true believer stays on the way and walks on the way by the power that is in him to do that. Finally, if you have a sensitive conscience about this issue, I want you to be assured by the fact that you have a sensitive conscience. If you fear, am I saved? Sometimes I sin, sometimes I struggle, sometimes I I really struggle against that thing in my life. The fact that you have a sensitive conscience about it is not an indication that you're lost, but an indication that you belong to the Lord. The false teachers didn't care. They were so hardened and so entangled that Peter says they reveled in the daytime. Things that even the pagans watching the church would not have done. They didn't care. They were hard. But true Christians have a sensitive conscience to these issues. Now, hopefully at this point, despite the strength of the warning, the door has been closed on the possibility that you might lose your salvation, that a true Christian could lose your salvation. And we are at the end of the passage here, but perhaps there is still 
a bit of a cold draft creeping through the crack in the closed door. And that leads us to a different kind of warning. A warning to take the whole Bible seriously. A warning to take the whole Bible seriously. Peter uh, talks earlier in chapter 1 about how whenever, whenever we read the scriptures, what are we reading? Well, men spoke from God. Human authors, but ultimately a divine author. And that means whenever we come to a difficult passage, we don't just read that passage. We read the entirety of God's word and we consider the hard in light of the whole. We consider what seems obscure in light of what seems clear. And that's what we ought to do here. So firstly, consider the Bible's human authors. In this case, Peter when we consider the whole of this letter, Second Peter, we realize that while Peter teaches that if you belong to Jesus and you know him, you will have the power to walk a holy life. And so you should try to do that. But if we also consider Peter's first letter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and verse 5, say this, it says that God caused us to be born again. And then in verse 5, by God's power, we are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now that's clear. Peter is teaching that you cannot, those who have been born again, cannot lose that salvation. They are being guarded by their own efforts, no, by God himself. And so when we consider this human author, Peter, and his entire argument, Peter did not believe that you could lose your salvation. And so we need to read 2 Peter 2, chapter 20, in light of 1 Peter. But don't just consider the Bible's human author. Consider the Bible's divine author. Peter had a certain way of writing, a certain personality, certain things that he wanted to talk about to the people he knew. And then Paul had his over here. Uh, and back in the Old Testament, Jonah uh, had his and Moses had his. All speaking into different situations. But God was telling one story. And God, by his Holy Spirit, was ensuring that they would not contradict each other. Why? Because God doesn't contradict himself. And so when we consider the whole of the Bible's teaching on this difficult question, we get a resounding no to the answer. Can a true Christian lose their salvation? Consider words that Peter would have heard himself from the Lord Jesus. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So those who know Jesus will follow him. They will obey him. And they cannot be snatched out of his hand. So when we consider the Bible as a whole, we realize that the Bible teaches something very important here. That perseverance is the test of authenticity. Perseverance is the test of authenticity. We don't persevere in order to prove ourselves authentic, true Christians. No, we persevere because we are true 
Christians because we belong to Christ. If you really know Jesus as your saviour, you will obey him. Not perfectly. And that's not what I'm talking about here, but you will not abandon him the way the false teachers have. So when we consider what we've read this morning, we have a real warning. We have a real warning. Don't abandon the way of truth for you might never find your way back again. And if there's never been real growth in your life or if you're on the verge of turning away, it may be that you need to repent this morning. That may be for the first time. But whatever you do, don't abandon the gospel. Don't abandon the Lord. But we also have assurance this morning and in our closing five minutes here, that's how I want to end. On a note of assurance, assurance for those on the way, on the way of truth. Firstly, and I'm trying to make these practical. Firstly, stay on the road. Stay on the road. Back in chapter one, Peter says, in verse 10, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. How do we do that? By pursuing these things. What are these things in verse five? Knowledge, faith, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, love, pursuing good works. And as we pursue holiness, we are actually creating in ourselves more assurance that we do belong to the Lord. Tim Chester has a really great book called uh, You Can Change. You Can Change. I highly recommend it. But after each chapter, he has what he calls a change project. And he encourages you to pick one thing, just one thing that you know you need to change in your life, that you know you need to see growth in. And he says this, is your change project something specific? Try not to choose something general like be a better parent. Pick a specific area of behavior or an emotion specific enough for you to be able to remember the last time you did it or felt it. That's good advice. You want to grow, you want to pursue holiness so that you can have more assurance in your life? Don't be vague. Pick one thing. Be specific about it. Pray about it. Share it with a friend or your spouse and work on it. And Ask God for the power to change. Stay on the road by pursuing holiness and you will have more assurance. Secondly, consider the foundations. Back to that picture of the road, the road, the way we live is built on foundations, truth. We thought about that this morning. Already consider all of what the Bible teaches on this. Does the devil whisper in your ear? You couldn't really belong to him. You're not one of God's elect. You've fallen again. You need to respond. No one can snatch me out of his hands. He is my shepherd. He will keep me. Is your change project that you've just taken up, is it going slow? Have you fallen again? Consider Philippians 1.6. I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in me will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He will sustain me. Stay on the road. Consider the foundations, God's word. Finally, look to the destination. 
Look to the destination. Peter talks a lot, and we'll think about this next week, about, about the new heaven and the new earth, the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the destination's a real place, and we'll be thinking about that. But it's more about a person than a place. It's the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Pursuing holiness is really about pursuing a person. It's about knowing Jesus. It's about growing in your love for him, appreciating more and more what he has done for you, and growing in that love with him, wanting to talk to him, not just feeling you have to talk to him, wanting to read about him and hear what he has to say in his word, knowing that refreshment that comes from knowing Christ through his word. Pursuing holiness, it's not meant to be joyless or dull. Yes, it's hard, but it's about pursuing our wonderful, amazing, gracious Savior and growing in our knowledge of him. And that's why the psalmist can say this. You have made known to me the path of life, how we live. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. Walking the road, the way of holiness, is about being in the presence of the Lord Jesus who brings us joy. If you know him as a person, then you are truly assured that you belong to him. And so I urge you to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And these are the closing words that Peter finishes his letter with. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we are being kept by you. That we are not earning our way to you. That we are not keeping ourselves on the road. But the road we walk on is built on the gospel of grace. And we praise you and bring glory to you for this glorious gospel. We pray that you would give us a greater desire to know Jesus as our Savior and to pursue holiness for his sake. Give us assurance if we lack it and need it. Give us a warning if we need it. But keep us on the way by your grace and by your power. Amen. Well, our last hymn is a hymn that's all about this assurance. Uh, it's one that we, we don't really, well, we haven't sung it uh, as a praise team, but I think many people know it here. And it's the piece, He Will Hold Me Fast. It will be up on the wall and we'll stand to sing that.